we are in week four of our sermon series called Follow Me. We're figuring out some of the characteristics of leadership in the kingdom of God by looking to the life of Jesus. How did Jesus live? How did he lead? What does that mean for us? And actually the things that we have found are just not very surprising at all if you have spent any time looking at the life of Jesus. But it is surprising or at least entirely opposite from the majority of leadership that we quite often see around us. And so when I think about those two things, I think, how did we get so far from what Jesus models? But you see, it's... um, We know that, like we know that it's different. We know that there is this great big gap in the middle and um, it's not new information to us. When we look at the life of Jesus, it shouldn't surprise us that he's different, right? Like it's not a surprise that Jesus' way of living and, and, and of leading other people is different, you know? There is nothing in the life and especially in the ministry of Jesus that was run of the mill. Of course, Jesus is a different type of leader. The thing that comes as a surprise to us uh, or that we don't really often like to receive is what it means then for us. And that's what we've been trying to scratch the surface of. And I say scratch the surface because this is a six-week series. So we're not going to crack Jesus-style leadership in six weeks. That would be a miracle. But it will stir something in us if we decide to let it And we believe that this is really important stuff for us to get a hold of. So far, like Zach uh, very helpfully summarized for us last week, we have seen that leadership in the kingdom of God and after the pattern of Jesus is leadership that is humble. It's uh, leadership that serves. It gives up. It's sacrificial. It lays down its rights, its agendas, ego, status, success. And it feels a bit like a heavy cost, doesn't it? Those are not the things that we go after often in life. And in a way, it is a heavy cost, but it's not for nothing. And that's where we are this week. You see, there is something else which is crucial to the life and the leadership of Jesus that grounds how he lived and how he led and how we can live and lead in this way. You see, Jesus lived with integrity and with delight in all of those things I just mentioned because every single one of them stemmed from and was steeped in a life of devotion. And that's where we're going this evening. We're looking at Mark chapter 1. It's helpful sometimes whenever we drop in on the Bible um, to know what has happened before so that we know what, what we're coming into. So in Mark 1... It's at the beginning of Mark, obviously, which is a gospel in the New Testament, which tells us all about Jesus, what he did whenever he was on earth. And up until this point in Mark 1, Jesus has been baptized. He's been tempted in the wilderness. He's called his first disciples, like we heard about last week. He's started to teach and to heal and to deliver people, all in a tidy 34 verses. So we're going to drop in at verse 35. And I'm reading this in the Passion Translation, which you might not have to hand necessarily. It's going to be in the screen behind me. um, So you can either just listen or follow along if you want to. So this is Mark 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 35. The next morning, Jesus got up long before daylight, left the house while it was dark, and made his way to a secluded place to give himself to prayer. 
Later, Simon and his friends searched for him, and when they finally tracked him down, they, they told him, everyone is looking for you. They want you. Jesus replied, we have to go on to the surrounding villages so that I can give my message to the people there, for that is my mission. So he went throughout the region of Galilee, preaching in the Jewish synagogues and casting out demons. Let me pray. So Holy Spirit, we invite you, not because we have to invite you, because you are already here, but because there are too, too many distractions in our own hearts and in our own minds. And so we want to hear from you in the best way that we can. And we need your help for that. So you come and presence yourself amongst us so that we can hear from you. Come and ready us. Amen. So this evening we're talking about prayer, which is uh, quite possibly one of my favorite subjects to talk about, which is a little odd, I know, but there we go. I mean, it is part of my job, so I'm well suited to it. Yeah, one of my favorite subjects, so buckle up. Uh, let me tell you some stories that I've heard um, recently about some really incredible times of prayer. So some of these are like from a really long time ago, and some of them are, are very recent. There is a church in Nigeria called the Redeemed Christian Church of God, and they are a Pentecostal church movement that is growing at an insane rate. They hold these Friday night prayer vigils on top of their usual like Sunday things. And at these prayer vigils, get ready for it, they regularly host up to a million people. A million people. I mean, that I can't even picture that. That's insane. It's amazing. So the chances are if you're going out on a Friday night and you're in Nigeria, you're going to church, I guess. These vigils last for like five, six, seven hours at a time. And you think it's a nightmare whenever we go over eight o'clock. <laughs> People are crying out to God in that country with total devotion. And they are seeing him move in incredible ways. And I believe that those two things are linked. The space that they meet in is 87 football fields big. And... I know, I mean, I don't know how big a football field is and I don't care, so don't tell me, but I do know that it's big, right? And the reason I know it's big, and this is possibly my favorite thing, is that they need a bus to get to prayer ministry. I want a bus. Where's Tom Montgomery? Can I have a bus? We don't need a bus, but maybe like some scooters or something. It's not mental. Can you imagine getting on a bus to go to prayer ministry? It's a long time to think. You know, you'd really have what you were coming for prayer for, just ready to go. Just before you say, well, that's, you know, amazing, but, you know, it's Nigeria, like we live in the UK. Their sister denomination in London has been known to host 40,000 people to their prayer gatherings. 40,000 people. They are devoted to prayer. They are dependent on it. And I heard their pastor, a man called Pastor Agu, speak last year, and he was asked what his personal rhythm of prayer is like. And he said, and he was very uh, humble when he was saying this, and actually incredibly uncomfortable at being asked about this in, in front of a lot of people. He said, on a normal day, it's two hours of prayer every morning. And sometimes it's three hours, but on an average day, it's two hours. And that's just how he starts. He attributes every breakthrough, every growth, everything to prayer. And so he keeps on praying. 
And before you say, well, that's a different denomination, you know, it's with our Pentecostal, we're Baptist, just in case you didn't know that, we're Baptist. This is not new, you know? This is not a new thing. It's not specific to denomination. Movements of prayer have sprung up all across the history of our faith and the current of prayer has ran underneath us always. St. Benedict, one of the founding fathers of monasticism, he wrote a rule of life, think like Jordan B. Peterson, but better. And it was like 1,500 years ago, so some of it is hard for us to get. Uh, One of my favorite things is that the monks were to try not to give themselves over to indigestion. I don't really know how you do that, but uh, there we go. You know, think about that the next time you eat too much. But what is central to this practice um, within the Benedictine tradition is that their day is ordered around prayer and worship. The day is split into eight canonical hours. So just to put that into perspective for you, before 9 a.m., by the time it gets to 9 a.m., the Benedictine monks have already prayed three times for like significant periods of time. Revival story after revival story will trace their roots and their beginnings back to people praying. Think of what Simon Gilbo asked us a couple of weeks ago when he was here. He said, I don't want your money. I don't want you to sell everything and come to Burundi. I want you to pray. Please pray. And he said to me afterwards, while he was clutching these sheaths of paper with all of our email addresses on them to sign up, he said, if even a fraction of these people pray, if even a fraction of them pray, that will make such a powerful difference. He said, my family is safe because of prayer. My children are alive because of prayer. I am alive because of prayer. It is the most important thing. Everyone wants strategies and models and structures of advancing and succeeding in ministry and work and leadership and parenting and whatever. And the more impressive they sound, the better. And there's this podcast for this and there's this book and I subscribe to most of them and none of them are bad. Well, some of them are, but most of them, it's not a bad idea. But it turns out that the answer all along which we have known, the very best thing that we can give ourselves to is prayer. And the truth is, I think we don't really want the answer to be prayer. We don't. Because we want the answer to be something that can be on our own terms. And there are many reasons why we love prayer and there will be many reasons why we find it incredibly hard. And I wonder if a lot of those reasons come back to the fact that it's just not on our terms. In prayer, we give over to God and we ask him to move. And sometimes we love what happens and sometimes we hate what happens and a high portion of the time we just don't understand. We come with all of those feelings and those experiences today. 
But I really want us to try and learn something new today as we look to the life of Jesus to see if we can see a different perspective. Think back to that first thing that we read in Mark 1. We're actually just looking at one verse this evening, the very first one, verse 35. The next morning, Jesus got up long before daylight, left the house while it was dark, and made his way to a secluded place to give himself to prayer. There are three things that I think we learn about prayer from what Jesus does here. Three things. We have got to get up. We have got to pipe down. And we've got to let go. First one. It's helpful for you to know that I, I mean, I don't know if it's helpful for you to know, but I'm going to tell you anyway. I am not a morning person. And if you've ever been around me in the morning, then you know that. I'm one of those people that like in the morning, people just constantly ask me if I'm okay. I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. Stop talking to me and just let me wake up. I'm a night owl. And, or actually, I have been thinking about this and I sort of was a night owl, but now I'm more of sort of middle of the day person. You know, like 2 p.m., it's a good time. Just had lunch. But I do still love um, the night watch. And people who um, are fellow night owls, you maybe will sympathize with me, that the evening, those late hours, they're full of good intentions, aren't they? Like you set your alarm for six, and you set out your running gear, if you can find it, and uh, you have your breakfast planned, you know, the morning. It's going to be great. And then 6 a.m. comes, and it's just not quite what you were expecting because I sort of expected like to be woken up by the sun streaming in through my window, even though I've got blackout blinds, and that the birds would waken me with their song, even though I have double glazing and the window is shut. And what actually happens is not the kind of cartoon stretch from bed ready to face the day. It's more just like a repeated punching in the face from my alarm clock. It's just like making awful noises. And, and I'm, my body is just like, what in the world were you thinking? This is among one of the worst decisions you've ever made in your life. Please lie down and go back to sleep. And then you have 20 minutes to get out the door. I uh, think... I think that Jesus was a morning person, and I respect him for that. But because the thing is, when you look to the life of Jesus, this getting up early thing, like it's a pattern. We see it all the time. I'm not going to go through all the examples because actually they are too numerous to mention. This is clearly ingrained in the lifestyle that he led on earth. He got up early and he prayed because he knew that it would direct everything for him, it would sustain everything within him and that it would transform everything around him. When it comes to prayer, we have got to get up. And I've heard many things over the years about, you know, oh, it doesn't matter what time and it doesn't have to be the morning. And on some level, of course, I agree, that is true. The morning is not the only time or the prescribed time or the holiest time to pray and to sit with God. But the more that I have lived this life with Jesus, I have learned against all that I would hope to be different that actually the morning is one of the very best times. Now, it shouldn't be your only time of prayer. 
It shouldn't be the only time that you spend with God during the day, but it is the best place to start because Jesus got up. That bit about him getting up early in the morning is not a veiled metaphor for something else. It means that he got up. He sacrificed something within him that he wanted or needed in order to commune, to rest, to greet the day with his Father. Prayer requires a sacrifice of our time and of our schedules and of our convenience. Because I really, I really do not want to just pray whenever it suits me. I don't want that to be what I do. I don't want to just pray when I can fit it in. That is not the kind of lifestyle that I want to live. And so I have to offer that up. And I have to say, Jesus, will you interrupt me? Will you dismantle my walls of convenience so that everything I have, including my time, is yours? Now, on a, on a practical level, you start where you are, not where you're not. So for some of you, maybe you're already amazing at this, and that's great. Please tell us what you do so we can learn from you. But if you currently don't give any time to prayer in the morning, then please don't do a Pastor Agu tomorrow morning and try and get up and pray for two hours, because I just really don't think that that's going to make you want to keep on doing it. I think it's going to be pretty hard. You know, try for 10 minutes. Because 10 minutes from nothing is better than nothing. Simple maths, I think. Try for 10 minutes. 10 minutes of sitting with God. It doesn't have to be the time when you pour over scripture or when you read or, or pray for lots of things or lots of people. Just sit. Just stay for a moment with your father in the morning because he is delighted that you are there. And then let that time grow into more and more. But follow the pattern of Jesus and get up. That one's pretty practical. We read later in that verse that Jesus went to a secluded place. And in other translations, it says things like solitary place or desolate place. And actually, it's likely that he probably would have gone to some sort of wilderness place or abandoned place to pray. And perhaps it's because people were now so often looking for him that he needed to get more inventive with where he went to pray. I don't know, but I, I do think that perhaps it also was because he knew that he needed a place that was free from disturbance. Like even Jesus needed a place free from disturbance, a place of silence and of solitude. When we come to pray, we have got to pipe down. There is so much noise around us. It is constant. We'd have to become Luddites to get away from it all. But this is important. Jesus knew that he had to get away. He had to get up, he had to get out, and he had to pipe down. A phrase that has stuck with me for many years and that continues to challenge me is that God is not going to compete with the noise in my life. 
He is many things, but I don't think that God is competitive because there is no equal to him. He is not a competitive God. And so he is not going to compete with the noise in my life. And it's not going to get any quieter. You know, there is not going to come like a magic point in your life where all of the distraction that you currently have fades away and you find that little, you know, nugget of time that you've been longing for all along. That's not going to happen because you see, we are gradually becoming more and more hardwired for distraction. And so when one distraction goes, we fill it with another. That is the way we work now. We need to be rewired. We need to be rewired. And I believe that that rewiring is aided by solitude. My mum lives in the countryside and I grew up there. I grew up in the middle of nowhere and there is a silence that you find in the countryside that even in like the quietest places in Edinburgh, and you can go to some pretty quiet places here, you just, it's not the same. The silence that I find there is, is incomparable. It's deep, you know, penetrates deep. It's a silence that slows everything down. It's vast. Maybe you've experienced something like that, or maybe it terrifies you. I find that people who grew up in the city are terrified of like, the silence and the darkness of the countryside, and you freak out when you see a sheep. But I'm a country girl at heart, so I love it. But I do notice, and this really annoys me, I notice when I am there that it takes me a while to adjust because I expect noise now. I expect distraction. I expect busyness and activity. And of course, all of those things exist in the countryside, I know, but I feel the jolt. I feel the jolt. And I wonder if maybe you're the same. What do you expect? Like what has become your norm? Is it noise and busyness and distraction? And we just accept it, don't we? Without questioning, we just accept it. And we say, this is the way my life is and there's nothing I can really do about it. It's not gonna change. But our life is little more than the sum of what we give our attention to. And I do not want to give my attention to busyness and to distraction. We need the jolt. And I believe that that is what solitude with God gives us. It's needed now more than ever. I mean, it's an old practice, but it is needed now more than ever. And some of you will have to work harder at solitude than others. You know, if you're a parent, Solitude for you might look like noise-canceling headphones and a gracious spice, you know? If you are a busy student, solitude like for you might be actually putting it in your diary. If you're like me and your diary seems to rule your life at times, I have to put that stuff into my diary or else it just doesn't happen, which does make me sad, but that's the thing that I have to do in order to carve out that time. Solitude will require you to say no to something so that you can say yes to God. There are things that you're going to have to say no to. It's going to require you to be okay with your own company. And it is possible for every one of us, but more than possible, 
it's necessary. Because there are many, many things that God wants to say to us and show us. And scripture tells us that he lavishes his love on us. That's not a quick word. Lavish is not a quick word. It is a slow word. Scripture also tells us that he sings over us and that he quiets us with his love. And I don't know about you, but I want to hear the songs that God is singing over me. Because why would he sing them if I couldn't hear them? That wouldn't be very fair. The problem is I just don't listen. I want all of those things, but I will not get any one of them if I don't get away and pipe down. And finally, when we come to pray, we've got to let go. And this one's probably the hardest because there's a detail in the language that I noticed um, that has really struck me. That word pray in this verse, when you look at it in its original language, because everything we read is a translation, the Greek is a word prosyuchamai, which is a good word, isn't it? Just me, cool. And we've got a little derailed from what that word actually means. I think deep down we do actually know what it means, but we just don't pay too much attention to it, or at least I know that I don't. This word to pray means in a more literal sense to move towards an exchange of wishes, of dreams, of desires, of hopes. Prayer transforms us and transformation is a gritty work. And it is a bit by bit work of relinquishing control. And we don't really like that at all. Because actually, we just want God to give us the things that we ask for, don't we? You know, I say this to you, and then you do this for me. That's how we want it to work. It's not a transaction. It's a yielding. And uh, Pete Gregg, in his new book, How to Pray, he talks about this. I haven't actually read his book yet. Many, many people have told me that I should, and I will at some point. I've heard it's good, so apparently, you know, you should read it, as should I. So I don't know if what I'm about to say about yielding is what he says. So if it is, then great, I'm on par with uh, Pete Gregg. But if not, then there's just room for more interpretation. So that's more just a little caveat. In prayer, we yield. We yield our wishes, our, our dreams. We let go of them. We let them out of our hands. And often I think we, we have this image in our mind that when we let go of something, because when we let go of something in this world, it falls, right? It falls to the ground and often it will break. And sometimes I think that that's what we think of in prayer, that when I let go of something, is it going to fall and shatter? That is not true. That is exactly what the enemy of God would like you to believe. But that is not true. When we yield in prayer, we yield them these hopes and dreams and requests and asks 
into the hands of a God whose very name is love. And he is always true to who he is, so he cannot be anything else other than that. We yield into the, the arms of one whose everlasting arms are underneath us. That's what Deuteronomy 33 tells us. We yield to the one who holds, note that language, holds all things together. That's Colossians 1. Whose hands uphold us and strengthen us. He lays his hand upon us. It says that all over the Psalms. That is who we yield to. And the enemy of God will do everything in his power to make you think that God does not care about what you talk to him about. That he is distant and that he is cold. But that is not the gospel that we have believed. We pray to a God of infinite grace. Infinite love who has infinite patience, an unending time for us. That is who we yield to. And so when we give him these desires, these hopes, these wishes, they are safe. That really helps me to know that the things that I relinquish over to God are not overlooked by him. They're not put on a shelf. They are held with the greatest of care. They are safe. They are not ignored, but it is an exchange. An exchange of our hopes and our wishes for his desires and hopes and wishes for us. That's the wonderful thing about that word yield. It kind of has two meanings. We submit, but we also get a return. As we yield to God, he yields back to us. And if we know anything about the yields which God gives, then we know that it is way more, far and above anything that we were ever expecting. I mean, all you have to do is look to the Gospels, five loaves and two fish feed 5,000 people. We have multiple examples in the life of Jesus where the, the disciples who were fishermen, we learned that last week, had a terrible night's work and Jesus comes along and suddenly their nets are bursting at the seams with more fish than they know what to do with. And that is literal and it's practical because it is actual fish. But also it is metaphorical to us. We learn something about what God is like through stories like that. This life in the kingdom of God heaves with the abundance of God but it all starts and ends in surrender to God. I mean, look at Jesus. He knew about yielding prayer. In this moment that we've just read, the yield that he received back from the Lord was that he needed to go out and preach, to go to the surrounding villages, not just to go to all the people who were looking for him in that moment. He had clarity about the direction that he needed to go in. But like I said earlier, this is not the only time that he went to a solitary place to pray. 
The night he was arrested, he went to pray and as he sat and wept and travailed in the garden and sweated blood, he yielded. He yielded his will for God's will and ultimately for us. God is not asking us to do something in prayer that he himself in the person of Jesus has not already done before us. A life of leadership in the kingdom of God modeled after the life and leadership of Jesus is a life that is devoted to, that delights in, and that is utterly dependent on prayer. We've now said this three weeks in a row, but I keep coming back to it. I shared it a couple of weeks ago. Zach mentioned it last week, that prophetic overflowing, bubbling up from Peter, one of Jesus' friends who always had a lot to say. And he said, in the face of many turning away from Jesus and at the question Jesus posed of, are you going to go to? Peter said, to whom else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Is that our cry? Like really, when we examine ourselves, is that our cry? Because I, I so desperately want it to be. I want that to be my cry. To whom else would I go? I want that to be our cry. To whom else would we go? Too readily we go to many other places. But I want us to be people who are marked by how we pray. Who rush to pray. Who fill our prayer room so that we really actually do 24-7 prayer, which, by the way, our reality on a good prayer week is roughly 18-5, which just does not have the same ring. And it's not about stats. It's about our hearts. It's about our motivation. Because too often we think we can get by. And we just can't. I want us to be a people of prayer. I want us to be those kind of people. And maybe this sounds like a rallying cry to you, and it is, but it's not mine. Jesus showed us this, and we have a choice as to whether we follow him. It will require something of you, no question. And it will cost you, no question. You will have to get up out of your literal bed and you will have to wake up from your spiritual slumber. You will have to quiet yourself, find that solace and solitude in his presence and you will have to let go. But the yield will be far and beyond more than anything we could ever have imagined. And so let's follow Jesus in this. Let's change some things within us. Let's give ourselves to prayer. Before I say anything more, I think we should pray.
So let me pray for us. I feel like my response needs to be that I'm going to kneel. So if you want to kneel with me, you can do that. But you don't have to. So Jesus, we are so in need of you. And too often we think that we're not. Too often we have relied on our own reserves and we have not replenished our reserves in your presence. Too often we have moved in our own strength and we have not realized that our strength comes from you. And Jesus, we want to be like you. You are a man of prayer. You were deeply dependent on your father and you spoke to him often. And we want to be like that. We want to be deeply dependent on prayer. So Holy Spirit, will you come and will you do some exposing within us? Show us where we have wavered. Show us where we have gone another way. Show us where We've become hardwired for something else and rewire us. Rewire us. Because we want to see you move. We want to have incredible stories. But that's not even the reason. We just want more of you. You are worthy, so we give ourselves to you.